Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. This is, in essence, a, a part two. Um, as we walk through John chapter 15, really verses 1 through 11 need to be taken in one chunk, but someone is long-winded and has trouble doing that. So John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 is really what we're going to finish out this morning. Um, and so just as a way of reminder and perhaps just a, a bit of introduction again, I'm not going to go too much, but last week I mentioned that the Israelites in particular would have taken this idea of the vine and immediately as the apostles would have heard this, would have begun to consider the fact that their vine is Israel, that their vine is a national people, and that the whole concept, their identity, their love, their value ultimately flowed from the fact that they belonged to national Israel. And hopefully what we saw was Jesus coming in and saying, I am the true vine. Essentially what he's arguing there is telling them that your identity, your, your delight, your pleasures, your comforts do not need to be linked or rooted in the fact that you are united to a national people. Because ultimately, being united to a national people might produce some fruit, but really what we see even the prophet Isaiah say is the fruit that is actually produced, it's not even the fruit that the Lord actually desired. He calls it wild grapes. And so what we actually walked through was to see this idea of a true vine that actually will produce in those united to it, the Lord calls them branches, that they will actually bear true fruit. They will bear the fruit that God has designed them to bear, that ultimately because they are connected to the vine that is Christ, they will produce fruit because all of their life, everything that they have, every ounce of spiritual existence flows from Jesus. That's why when we come to this passage, we must do well to remember that this is not just an agricultural metaphor. Instead, it is a statement of saying the true identity, the delight of the branch is that they are united to the vine. This is actually articulating the doctrine of union with Christ, that the great joy of the saint is that we actually are united with him. He is not foreign to us. He is not distant to us. Instead, what we actually have is a Christ who is imminent and a Christ who supplies all of our need, that all of the benefits that we have in the Christian life flow from the fact that we are connected to him, not that we have life in ourselves. that it flows completely from the person of Christ. And so that just being a, a, a perhaps a, a way of reminder as we progress forward through this, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 15 is where we are. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. As it is my joy each and every Lord's Day to remind you that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that, you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, there is nothing more joyous than knowing that we are united to your Son. And so as we come to the text this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the full joy that is brought to us in union with Christ. That in it we may see that fruit will be produced, that you will care and nurture the branches that are connected to the vine because you love the glory of the vine. And so, Father, I ask you this morning, as we come to this text, Lord, would you give us all a heart of self-examination? Lord, it is lofty, the things that are before us. But Lord, in our self-examination, may we be quick to cast ourselves on the true and better vine. That in him is all of our life, in him is everything that we need. And so, Lord, would you help us as branches to desperately see and delight in the nourishment that comes from the true vine. It is in the name of Jesus, and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to this particular text, I just want to offer you a sermon in a sentence. If you were here last week, you know that the sermon in a sentence was more like a paragraph in a sentence. And so what I'm going to do this morning is give you something a bit more condensed because I want to be nice to you. So sermon in a sentence this morning is this. Fullness of joy is only found in the true vine. That's it. Fullness of joy is only found in the true vine. For us to understand everything that's going to be said, we must look at it really from the lens of joy. When we come to this passage, and the vast majority of times that I've either read or heard someone do an exposition of this text, it's almost void of joy altogether. But for us, and for us to understand exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying, we must understand everything that's mentioned in light of this last verse. I'm going to read it again to you. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The whole premise of everything that Jesus is articulating to us this morning is that we are a people that when we consider the joys, the glories, the benefits of being in Christ, have no choice but to have the joy of Christ in us and for that to be expressed in our daily life. Brothers and sisters, I will tell you, there is perhaps nothing more tragic nor ironic than a Christian who lacks joy. It is the most foolish of things. When we consider the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were enemies of God, but by his grace we've been made alive together with Christ, that we actually have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how is it even possible for us to exhibit any emotion, any actual state of being other than joy? Saints, we must be a joyous people. And so what I'd like to do this morning is give you some exhortations on why we should be joyful and then give you the very clear statement that Jesus makes in saying that all of these things I've articulated so that you might be joyous, that you might be filled with an inexpressible joy, as it were, as Peter would articulate, joy that absolutely confirms that you are in the faith. And so what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through verses 7 through 11. We'll start in verses 7 and work our way down. So John chapter 15, verse 7 and 8 says this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, um, anytime we come to a verse like John 15, 7, we have to uh, really navigate this situation well. We also have a similar verse in John chapter 14, verse 14, as it were, that says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there, are, there is churches built on this one verse void of context altogether. If we come to this and understand it in its appropriate context, because when we see the Lord Jesus say this, it's always in light of something spiritual being done in their life. So first and foremost, in John chapter 14, verse 14, he's telling them that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And then he gives them this statement. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What we often do is disconnect this statement from the context. And we begin to come up with all types of faulty doctrines where we can go up to the Lord Jesus after he sheds his blood and begin to ask him for all types of wealth, health, and prosperity. We could take this verse, as many have done, and begin to ask for things like Maseratis. That ultimately, when we come to this text, we cannot look at it and divorce it from everything that's just been mentioned. This is not an invitation for you to name it and claim it. This is an invitation for you to claim the promise that Jesus just made to you. It's totally different. It's the same basic concept of those who would look at the Psalms and say, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart and presume that you can then flow out all types of wicked desires and the Lord Jesus will give them to you. It's folly. But when we come to this in its appropriate context, we can understand it in a way that when we look at John chapter 14, verse 14, we can say, Okay, if we desire to do good works unto God, we must seek the Son. And if we seek the Son, then he will birth that in, that in us because it is to his glory. That's the appropriate way to understand this. In the exact same way, when we come to John chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, that doesn't mean we void the promise because of its abuse. We never judge a scripture. We don't come to passages like Philippians 4.13 and rule them out of our Bibles because people abuse them. No, we aim to understand them rightly. And so when we come here, how is this rightly to be understood? If it's not a name it, claim it doctrine that's being preached, how then do we understand it? And I'd like to articulate it in this way. So first, if I abide in Christ and Christ's word abides in me, I can ask for whatever I wish. True. Yes and Amen. But what is it that the disciple, the true disciple wishes for? What is the longing of their hearts? What is it that they delight in more than anything else? Well, we see it very clearly articulated in John chapter 15 already. Let's continue the verse. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Listen to the language that Jesus then goes straight into. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The immediate idea of wishing for something is to the glory of the Father. So if we say anything you wish in Jesus' name will ultimately be given, what then is the wish of the true disciple? The wish of any true disciple is that the Father may be glorified. Saints, the wish of any true disciple is that the Father will be glorified. That means that in the best possible moments of your life, you are thinking to yourself, how can God be made much of? That means in the deepest possible pain, you think all glory be to Christ. 
Because when saints are blessed and experience all types of wonderful things here, here below, we rejoice in those things and understand that they come only from God who is being gracious. And when saints go through various trials and tribulation, as Peter would articulate, we rejoice knowing that it will produce glory, honor, and praise of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is to our joy. We wish, we long for the Father to be glorified. Now, if the disciple wishes for the Father to be glorified, and how then is the Father glorified? Well, we see in this verse, in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So you can, you can wish for whatever you'd like in Jesus' name. The thing that you should be wishing for if you be a saint is that the Father may be glorified. We know the Father is glorified when we produce fruit. Therefore, any saint who is desiring to see the Father glorified, their prayer is not this wish of some materialistic blessing. It is instead, Lord, would you, by your grace, through the vine that I am united to, produce fruit in my life. That is the great longing of the saint. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you're connected to that vine and you understand that any branch that is not bearing fruit is cast away, then our wish, our longing is, Lord, produce fruit in me. Because if there's no fruit, then it is an indication that you don't know the vine at all, that you are not connected to him. Friends, we must understand that anyone who is connected to the vine will in actuality bear fruit. It is not an if statement. It's not a presumption that, oh, perhaps that is, that, any, that a saint who's connected to Jesus will actually bear fruit. That is not the case at all. It is an absolute truth that anyone who is united to Christ will bear fruit unto God because it is their delight and the vine doesn't fail. This is the most important thing that we can take away from this. Friends, when we look at this language and we see and we are thinking, okay, what's the delight of my soul is to see glory given to the Father. I know that's produced through fruit in my life. Where then does this fruit come from? It comes from Christ. It is his life-giving soul that gives us life and bears fruit in us. Apart from this, then we would, without certainty, according to verse 5, bear nothing. There's nothing that we can produce. But by God's grace, he has united us to a vine that will not fail nor falter. He will produce fruit, and he produces it in each of the branches that are connected unto him. So what is it that the disciple wishes for? The disciple who is abiding in Christ and Christ's word abides in him wishes to bear fruit. That's the thing that we long for. Saints, we must be people who long to bear fruit, and we must know where that fruit is ultimately produced from. We don't all of a sudden begin to work as hard as we possibly can to produce fruit. No, we trust, rely, and depend on Christ, knowing that he will produce fruit in us. We'll see in just a moment that there's only one command in this passage. And that command encourages us simply to abide in his love. That should we long to produce fruit in our life, it reveals that we must cast ourselves onto him and he will produce it in us. And so what then is the comfort? What is the joy of this passage? If all this is leading to Jesus saying, I write these things, I'm giving you these things, that your joy may be, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full, I would argue it this way. The disciple who bears fruit is comforted by the evidence that he is a true disciple. I want you to notice the language here again in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you know if you are in Christ? We play this game today where some would articulate there's no way to know if anyone is in Christ or not. And then, we, then other times we live a fruitless life altogether and we gladly dub them Christian. The Scriptures does not give us permission to do this. 
The scriptures are actually abundantly clear. The whole premise is anyone who's united to the vine, who is actually a branch connected to them, will bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, I think we do well to examine ourselves. We do well to examine ourselves and to see, is there fruit in my life? Is there evidence of grace? Is there a clear sign that I have an affection for Jesus? And that in doing that, we can see that, yes, I am in Christ. I see fruit produced, and it's alien. It can't be from me because it's not of the flesh. It's of the Spirit, and it longs to give glory to the Father. If that is evidence in your life, then certainly we can say there's fruit. And if there's fruit, then I am indeed a true disciple of Christ. But perhaps it is saint. And I'm speaking specifically to the saint. That you examine your life, and for just a moment you think, where is my fruit? Where is it? Where's... Where's the evidence of grace? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, this is not something that we do in every hour. It's something that we examine over months and years to see the grace of God in our life to produce fruit. Many of you are recently converted and you see small ounces of fruit, evidence of grace in your life. Many of you are seasoned. You are 20 plus years in the faith and you can examine and see how Christ has worked in your life, how he's given and borne fruit in you. Brothers and sisters, we can look at that and celebrate and rest in the fact that Jesus has an actuality, given us life, and we can be comforted by that. This is to our joy. Examine the fruit that is ultimately produced by Christ, by your connection to him in the vine, and remember that he alone is to receive glory for that. We would do well to consider passages like Philippians chapter 2 that would remind us to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But don't be a fool. For it is God who works and wills within you for his good pleasure. Should you bear fruit unto God, it is Christ who is to be praised. For apart from him, you can do nothing, as John 15, 5 would remind us. Thus we see, if Christ is producing fruit in me, then I am most certainly united to him. I am his. Fruit evidences that we are disciples of Christ to our joy. Now, the question becomes, what is this fruit? I mean, what is this fruit? We talked last week kind of about the affections and how really Christianity has been robbed of affections altogether, oftentimes to perhaps overcorrect from what I call the doctrine of sola feels, that really all that we're looking for is some emotional feeling. We're looking for some perhaps emotional reaction to something that is true. And that's not the biblical sense of affections. When we consider affections, what is it that you love? That's the first sign of fruit. The first major indication that you are in Christ is do you love him? Do you actually have a desire to spend time with him? Is it your delight? like to see him made much of. The first fruit that must be seen, the first fruit that I think is evidence in every believer's life, anyone who is connected to the vine, is that you love Jesus. And I don't mean our frail definition of love. I mean a deep, intimate longing for his glory, that he is your delight, that if everything else is ripped away from you, but you have Christ, you have everything that you will ever need because he is an actuality all. This is the first sign of being in Christ, that there is an affection for him. And perhaps it is, saint, that you think your affection is too weak. I would remind you that before the spirit of God does a work in your life, you have zero affection at all. So we should count an ounce of it as evidence of grace. That if there be any love of Christ in us, we must understand that it is born from above, not from within. So what is this fruit? It is affection for Christ and it is obedience unto him, which we will see here in a moment. But let's press on to John chapter 15, verse 9. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
let's just consider the first major premises here. The first thing that we have to ask in light of this verse is, as the Father has loved me, well, I think we, should, we would do well to ask the question, how has the Father loved the Son? I mean, the whole understanding of this section is based on how did the Father love the Son? How does the Father love the Son? Now, there are some that would say, we don't need to look too far back. We need to primarily look at his incarnation. I think that would be... Um, be a, perhaps a shallow view and perhaps not articulating what ultimately needs to be seen here. The thing that we can understand from this passage is that the Father has loved the Son eternally and immutably. Hear this, eternally and immutably. So let's just understand this for a moment. That means that before the foundation, that means in eternity past, the Father was in an intimate relationship within the Trinity, loving the Son. And this whole idea is that the Father has an actuality, loved the Son as long as He's been God, which by the way is forever, is actually eternal. I can't under, I can't like articulate that well, but the basic premise is there's never been a moment that God the Father has not been loving the Son. It's never occurred. That this whole idea is that he has loved him eternally and that his love for him is immutable, it's unchangeable. The whole premise here is that God's love for the Son is perfect in every way. It is absolutely perfect. It finds no faults, no failures. His love for the Son is completely and totally perfect. But we can also see in his earthly ministry, as he is incarnate here, as he takes on the form of the servant, what has the Father done for him? The Father has nurtured and cared for him and directed him. The whole premise here is that the Father has from everlasting been loving the Son perfectly. And as he becomes incarnate, he demonstrates that by nurturing and caring for the Son and doing so in perfection. He nurtures and cares for the Son primarily to bring about perfect obedience, that the Father, the Son would be perfectly obedient to everything that the Father has commanded. But not only that, we also see that the Father glorifies the Son. Now, there are some that perhaps would take everything that I've just said and make an argument that I would think Jesus is subordinate to the Father. No. The Father, this Father and the Son are equal, and the term is ontologically but we do see a submission that the Son gives to the Father that He might be perfectly obedient unto Him, that He might fulfill all righteousness, that that righteousness that He fulfills would actually be ours. And so what we see here is a perfect love that the Father gives to the Son. Now, we have to be careful here because we're not saying that we then are glorified. We're not saying that 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 because the Father glorifies the Son, meaning gives glory unto, that He then gives glory to us because He will share His glory with no other. Instead, we see something a bit distinct, but we'll come back to that. So how has the Son then loved us? Jesus is saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So essentially what He's saying is that the Son has loved us, I would argue, eternally and immutably. Now, this perhaps could become a point of contention, but I would like to articulate the fact that what we find in the gospel is that the Father elects people unto salvation and the Son loves them perfectly and keeps them. That the whole premise here is that we have actually been elected into Christ. When we look at passages like Ephesians chapter 1, it's, we're reminded ever constantly of the fact that we have been given unto Him and we have been given unto Him before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you in this. Understand that if you be in Christ, you have been loved by him before you were ever created. You've been loved by him before the foundation of the world, and you have been loved by him, I would argue, into the expanse of eternity. He set his affection on you. Now, but I had done nothing. But I had, I had not contributed anything. How is it that he loves me eternally, that he loves me immutably? 
because his love is perfect and whom he sets it on, he keeps. And so as we consider this, we have to understand that the love that the son has given to us is actually an eternal and immutable love. Now, perhaps it is that you think, well, what does this ultimately mean? How can I rest in this? Can I just, just, just for a moment, if the father knew every single thing that was to occur in your life, if he knew every sin, every trespass, every iniquity that you would commit, and his affection for you has not changed, his love for you has not faltered nor failed, nor is it subject to change if it is actually immutable, what rest does that bring us? If he knew us, knows us even now, and his love is actually immutable, unchangeable, that the, the love the son gives to us is the love the father has given to him. He gives it freely to us, an unshakable foundation. But we also see that, he lo- that the son loves us by nurturing and caring for us. The whole premise of this passage is looking at it through this idea of vine and branches. When we see the father nurture and care for the vine, we see him as, as in earlier in chapter 15 that he plucks and he prunes. Of his whole idea that the father is caring for the son to bring about the vine's glory, we being the branches then receive the benefits that ultimately the father is loving us through the son. That the means by which we enjoy the love of God is ultimately through the finished work of Christ. But lastly, we see the love of the Son, we see the, we see the love the Son has for us, not by us being glorified, but by us being brought home with Him. That we have actually been united with Him. And since we've been united with Him, we will be with Him wherever He is. That when He is glorified, we will be there to see His glory, to embrace it, to enjoy it, to see it, and to find in it our great hope that we have been longing for, and we will indeed see it. But That's how we are loved. That's how the Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved us. But here we see the only command in this passage, the only imperative. As you look at this, I mean, we see so much in regard to obedience. We see so much in regard to bearing fruit. But the command here, the single command is to abide in my love. There are commands that I see the Lord Jesus give, and I often call them affectionate orders. When we think of a command, oftentimes we think of this overbearing statement, but instead what we find far far more often than not, is this affectionate demand. The way that a father demands his children to do something that ultimately will benefit them. That really the idea of telling your children perhaps to come home is to come and to enjoy the love, the peace, the comfort that you have in this home. The command that God, that Jesus is giving to his people, giving to his disciples, is to abide and rest in my love. This is the imperative. I want you to understand that in light of all these things, Jesus' imperative, his command to his people, is to know, love, and abide in me. Remain in my love. And the whole idea is that if we do that, if we do this one command, then ultimately everything else will ultimately come to fruition. It will come to pass. You want to bear fruit unto God, abide in his love. You want to understand and know the joys of being in Christ, abide in his love. The whole premise of every moment of this statement is you have to abide in Christ, know, understand, and enjoy the love of God in Christ. And should you rest there, rest comfortably, fruit will be produced. And the command is a simple one, but the command is an important one. And and one that we often overlook, and we see this evidenced so often. Obedience not born of love. Obedience of perhaps obligation. And it is gross. There is perhaps nothing more hideous than one who is being unwillfully obedient, but is still doing the action. We see this perhaps most clearly in the moments we ask our children to clean their rooms. And all of a sudden they're clean, but everything's under the bed. Or perhaps when our spouse asks us to wash the dishes 
And we do it, but we happen to break a dish in the process because we're so frustrated about being obedient or being submissive. That's not obedience. Abiding in love produces an obedience that is glorious, that it is sweet not only to the soul of the one being obedient, but also to the one who you are rendering obedience unto. When we love the Father and thus obedience is produced, when we're abiding in the love of Christ and in that we are then obedient, it is the sweetest of things, is it not? Does it not bring us great comfort to see fruit produced in our life when, we, when it is born of affections, when it is born of delight in the one whom we are being obedient to? This is the command. Saints, if I could give you any command in all of Scripture, it would be this one. Abide in the love of Christ. You fear that you will be taken away by every wind of doctrine. Abide in the love of Christ and it will protect you. You fear that sin perhaps will captivate you, that it will drag you away. Abide in the love of Christ. For if you are abiding in the love of Christ, what can steal your affection from him? We often miss that we make decisions based upon our affections. And if your affections are fixed on Jesus, if you know that your nourishment comes from him, if you know that your joy is in him, then your affections will only be for him. And any obedience that is rendered unto him will be to our delight. And anything that would desire to take us captive and drag us away, it would fail. For the love of Christ, nothing can separate us from it. It actually has us. And he simply calls us to abide in it. Oh, the remedies that are in this simple command. Abide in my love. You want to be obedient? Abide in his love. You want to love your spouse well? Abide in the love of Christ. And thus we see the simple command that ultimately has impacts in every single area of life. Abide in Christ's love. Everything is sweeter there. So the command is simple, to abide in my love. But how is it that's expressed? What, is, what evidence is that? John chapter 15, verse 10, I think answers this question. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, there's a couple of things that I'd like to point out here. First and foremost, if you haven't noticed from really chapter 13 all the way to chapter 15, Jesus is making clear that there is an intrinsic link between love and obedience. It's intrinsic. It, 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 is, it is undeniable that there is a link between love and obedience. Now, how then do we understand that? I think we see that really clearly articulated here. So the first thing that we see Jesus do is call his disciples to obedience born of love. Obedience born of love. We've already talked about how actually ugly obedience born of obligation and not affection is, but he simply tells them, if you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. So he tells them, I want you to be obedient as I've commanded you to abide in my love, then you must be obedient. You will in actuality be obedient. He says, you will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. Now, how does this look? What does this actually look like? When we are looking to examine how does love and obedience actually connect to one another, Jesus then gives us the way to understand that. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So how obedient then was the son? Let's just look at a couple of passages. John chapter 8 verse 29 says this, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things, forgive me, do the things that are pleasing to him. The love the son has for the father is perfect. Thus the love that the, the obedience that the son renders to the father is perfect. 
it is complete in every way. And we see this perhaps most clearly noted as, we are intro- as we're being introduced to this passage in John chapter 14, verse 31, that says this, but I do as the Father has commanded me. This is Jesus making reference to his glorification, that is, his death, his being lifted up on the cross. Notice what it says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Let's just pause and answer perhaps a question. Why did, the, why did the Son go to the cross? Most certainly, saints, we can say, it is for love of those who would be born of him and love for those he would rescue. But we must understand that is secondary. The primary reason that Christ went to the cross was to be obedient unto the Father because his love for the Father was perfect in every way. And thus we see very clearly stated I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus' great expression of love to the Father was his substitutionary death, of which we are all benefactors. And if we consider that in light of just this very passage, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I want to hit two major things here. First and foremost, I want us first to understand that the righteousness that is produced through Christ's substitutionary death is sufficient. Not only is it sufficient, it is efficient. It is perfect in every way. Meaning that the day that you stand before God on the day of judgment, we are not looking to see any righteousness that you have produced in your life as means of entry, as means of justification. No, we see the finished work of Christ in totality saying he actually is righteous. He is not only just righteous, he is perfectly righteousness, righteous, clothed with the righteousness of Christ that he has per- per- perfectly provided. But we must also understand that that righteousness that is given to us, the vine that we are connected to, will in actuality bear fruit in our lives. This fruit is not some form of legalism. This fruit is a repercussion of the finished work of Jesus. This fruit actually is produced because we have been brought into the love of God. We are enjoying the love of God. And in doing so, we will in actuality bear fruit faithfully, as it were. And so what is this connection between love and obedience? The connection is simple. Love births obedience and obedience evidences love. Let me just make a simple statement. If you say you have a love for Christ and you are not obedient unto him, I'm not saying with perfection that you never fail nor falter. We know that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if there's no desire for obedience, if there's no longing to be obedient to the command of Christ, which we'll deal with here in just a moment, it's probably indication that there is no love for him. Just as we look at passages like in the book of James, that faith without works is dead, we must also see that love that doesn't produce obedience is likely no love at all. And so... I think we do well to ask the question then. This whole idea is if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in him. So what is the commandment? What is this whole premise being written around? Jesus is telling them that you must actually love and be obedient unto me. Your, your obedience evidences your love. So what is this commandment? Well, if we take it in its immediate context, and I think that is where we must take it, it is this, that we love one another. I want you to notice two, past, two verses that we find in, in this section. First, it says this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. In John chapter 15, verse 12, just the next two verses. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Have you considered the loftiness of that task? Because notice what it's contrasted with. It's not that you love one another like we get to define what love is. 
It's love one another as I have loved you. I'm going to do my best not to steal from next week's text. But friends, that love is lofty. And that love can't be produced from you. That love is alien altogether. As we spoke on uh, John, uh, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The very first thing that we had to make clear is that the love that is necessary for you to be obedient unto him is not born of you. It's born from above. The whole premise here is that the spirit of God must do a work in your life to birth in you affection for Jesus because in and of yourself, you have none. It is alien altogether, and so we must love one another. Now, how then do we understand this? What's the practical implications? How then do we live this out? If someone were to walk in here and ask the question, do you love each other like Jesus loved you? Well, I think Paul gives us a great way to examine that in 1 Corinthians 13. I'd like to read to you just a couple of verses. Simple, but my goodness, are they just an impossible task. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. How we doing? Saints, we can look at this list. We can find ourselves burdened by it. Now, I will articulate, this needs to be evidenced in every local body of believers. That's the premise. But do not think for a moment that you mustering up your greatest affection, that you mustering up your greatest ability to articulate, to, to perfectly be obedient to each of these things will actually produce them. The command is simple. Abide in my love. This is the love of God. That when we look at these commands to love, to obey, the solution to them, as we read them and we see they're lofty, patient, and kind, I failed in that this morning. My goal then is not to see this and say, well, I'm going to do my best. My goal is to look at the love of God in Christ and to abide there. And therefore, that is what must flow from me, that I will actually be patient and kind, that I will not envy or boast, that I will not be arrogant or rude, that each of these things are produced not by us coming up with some great love that we have in and of ourselves, but abiding in the love of God that has been granted to us in Christ, resting our head there. That's the only means by which that will be produced. Because in all of those, in all of those, we see our Lord Jesus do so perfectly. And thus, we go to the final moment here. What's the premise of everything? This whole idea, everything we've looked at, really from John 15, 1, all the way to John 15, 11, what's the goal? What's the end route? How, what is Jesus trying to produce in his disciples? What does he want them to walk away with? Well, verse 11 says, these things I've spoken to you that you may that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Saints, the goal here is to walk out joyous. Now, these are lofty things that he's given to us. These are weighty. So what then is our joy? So I'm just going to read off a couple of things that I think are helpful for us in going all the way back to verse 1. Saints, our joy is full when Christ supplies our every, every spiritual need. When we are not mustering up something, something in and of ourselves, but depending wholly on the vine, our joy then can be full, for we are not burdened with a works-based salvation. Our joy is full when the Father tends to the branches for the glory of the vine. Saint, if your delight is the glory of the vine, then you rejoice in his pruning. 
you, you are thrilled by the fact that God is actively working in your life to bear more fruit unto him. Our joy is full when we bear fruit produced from the nourishment of the true vine, for it evidences our connection to him and glorifies the Father. When there is fruit produced in your life, praise the Father, for he is working in you. Evidence of grace. Our joy is full when we remain in the love of the Son. How can our joy not be full when we remain in the love of the Son, when we rest our head there at night? And lastly, our joy is full when we, in obedience and from abiding in the vine, love the branches. Is there anything sweeter than the love of God demonstrated in the love that we have for one another? Brothers and sisters, I'll tell you that every Lord's Day is a breath of fresh air to me. That as we walk through our daily lives, as we experience perhaps interactions with lost people by God's grace, we preach Christ to them that they might be brought into the fold. But there is nothing sweeter than experiencing the love of God in Christ from saints who have been abiding in him. So the question perhaps is this, do you love the branches? If you love the branches, is your soul filled with joy? Are you obedient unto the Son because you love him and are resting in his love? If so, may your joy be full. Saints, if we abide in him, if he is our treasure, there is nothing for us to do but to be joyful.